the scary thing is that we're vaccinating children with this experimental genetic therapy, which we know causes cancer, but we don't know what the time frame is. So we are likely, and who knows, you know, going to be facing a new pandemic, a pandemic of malignancies and cancers. Welcome to the Practicing with Dr. Nathan Goodyear podcast. I'm the medical director at Brio Medical in Scottsdale, Arizona. I am both a conventionally trained and licensed medical doctor as well as a licensed medical homeopathic doctor. This podcast is your resource for a scientific-based discussion of all things cancer and beyond from a natural, holistic, and integrative perspective. It's time to teach the body how to heal. So here we go. Is the current healthcare model broken? Is it time to redefine healthcare, redefine medicine, or can we restore medicine to its original purpose? Welcome back. I'm with Dr. Paul Merrick, who I've introduced in the first podcast that we uh, shot. So I encourage you to check out the link back to podcast number one, where we took some incredibly deep dives into your work in vitamin C and sepsis and really extrapolated that out to the pandemic and, and cancer. But I think these questions here, they really help us to direct the next journey in Dr. Paul Merrick's career. And his next one, I think, is going to be even bigger that we'll talk about in just a second. But these questions are really out of the book that he just published. And we'll highlight that again in the next podcast. But Dr. Paul Merrick, welcome back. Thanks, Dave. Yeah, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I had a great time with, uh, with you yesterday. Um, what I wanted to talk about here is literally we're just connecting the dots. I had the honor of being able to speak at the FLCCC conference back in the spring of this year, 2023, and I, I highlighted a couple quotes, and I think, it, I think it bears direction and relevance here. The first one is a quote that says, students today are educated in collecting dots, but almost none of it is spent teaching the skills necessary to connect the dots. And then Steve Jobs, who I think everybody knows, um, you can connect the dots looking forward, but you can only connect them looking backwards. So what, what we've been doing here with Dr. Paul Merrick is we're going to be connecting the dots to the future. But to do that, we've been connecting them to the past and following this incredible career. And we're going to see where it's going. And it's super exciting about where it's going, because I think the best your best work is ahead of you. I really do believe that. So um, to find out that first podcast and check that out, there'll be a link here. So check that out. Paul, again, let's talk about the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance. How did this start? I mean, because this is, did you ever see yourself when you published that paper on vitamin C and sepsis, did you ever see yourself starting an organization like that? Yes, that's a good question. You know, like many things in life, they happen because of circumstances. You know, we didn't plan this to happen. And so we just filled the need. So much like vitamin C, there was a need to be filled and circumstances were opportune and we just did what we did. Really, the same thing happened with the FLCCC. So it really goes back to March and April of 220. And so I'm a critical care doctor. I was looking after patients in the ICU with COVID. 
And patients hospitalized with COVID is a serious disease. You know, people have, have minimized it as being the flu. It's a serious disease. And at that time, and to some degree still today, the NIH, the WHO, the CDC said there's no specific treatment. The treatment was supportive. And we knew from data coming out in New York and Italy that patients in the ICU who were on a ventilator had a mortality up to 80%. So it's just mind-boggling that you can have a disease that is so fatal um, and so vicious and that you're not going to treat it. I mean, as doctors, that's not what we do. We treat. Mm. And if we don't have a specific proven cure, you know, from a randomized controlled double-blind study, you basically apply your clinical skills based on your intuition, understanding the disease, to do what you can for the patient. It's just what doctors do and what doctors have done from time immemorial. You're faced with patients and you can't just say, well, there's no treatment, I'm not going to do nothing. You're going to do something. So we came up with a protocol to treat the hospitalized patient. And so, you know, I, I put together a protocol and then I thought, you know what, I better, you know, validate this. I better, you know, discuss this with some of my colleagues. So, you know, I, I, I called Dr. Corey, I called... Um, uh, Joseph Verón, I spoke to my friend Jose Iglesias, mm -hmm. and so what we did, and then obviously Umberto Maduri, who's a world expert on steroids, so that really was how the FLCCC came into being, you know, it was a group that came together to devise a protocol to treat the hospitalized patient with COVID. So let me get this straight, because I think you, you correctly I think made um, directed attention to you know data, and that you know there are some people out there that looked at COVID as just something that's not real, that's not a concern, et cetera. You know what happens is you know when politics it, you know infuses something, it corrupts it eternally, and unfortunately, I think that's some of what's wrong with medicine. But your approach is you you uh, had a solid foundation of science, you looked at the data. With the data, you then collaborated with colleagues to innovate in a arena that had no idea what to do. So you took scientific principles and applied them really in the exact same way you did with vitamin C and sepsis. Yeah. So, I mean, the, these weren't random therapies that we just sucked out of thin air. They were based on our understanding of the disease at that time. Um, so, you know, we, we knew that, you know, once you were hospitalized with COVID, that this was a severe inflammatory disease. You know, they were talking about the cytokine storm. So we knew this was a profound inflammatory disease. We knew that there was severe clotting. So it doesn't take rocket science to figure out what to do. So what do you do? You use drugs that are anti-inflammatory. And you use drugs that are anticoagulants. And that's how our Math Plus protocol came into being. And, you know, it was supported by some really good science. And as the science evolved, the support for the protocol became even stronger. You know, we were seriously criticized 
were using corticosteroids. Many people called it medical malpractice. And it just so happened, six months down the line, there was a randomized controlled trial, which was based out of the UK, which showed that dexamethasone was life-saving. So, you know, we were ahead of the ball at least six months. And then when it comes to anticoagulation, we knew this was a clotting disorder. And it took about another year before there were randomized controlled trials demonstrating <laughs> the benefit of anticoagulation. But I think it makes an important point is that you can't base treatment based purely on randomized controlled trials because there's not a randomized controlled trial for every single medical disorder and every single patient is different. So you have to apply the science and the art as we spoke about yesterday. So it just so happened, you know, the, the editor of New England Journal told Dr. Corey, well, you got lucky. No, it wasn't luck. Luck had nothing to do yeah. with it. It was just having a good understanding of physiology, pathophysiology, pharmacology, and applying basic principles, which is what doctors do at the bedside. So it, it was, it was, it it wasn't luck. It was, it was deep understanding of the disease and an approach to, uh, to how to treat the disease. I think it was being a scientist and embracing those principles of what it means to be a doctor. And I think one of the reasons that you stood out so, obviously, is that number one, there was this statement that, you know, science is settled and science by definition is never settled. It's constantly learning as new discoveries is made. And so the idea is that if science is settled, there's no debate and discourse, but science by its definition is debate and discourse. We exchange ideas, which is the principle you showed in collaborating with your colleagues. And, but what you showed there with that group of colleagues, as you mentioned their names, that stood in stark contrast to what was being promoted and propagated, which is, no, no, follow these protocols. Yeah, so I think it's really dangerous in medicine when you follow a protocol or a guideline or a narrative without thinking because that's not what medicine is is there's there's no definitive protocol there's no protocol that treats 100 percent of patients and many of these protocols or standards of care or therapeutic approaches are simply wrong yeah. so i think you have to follow the science you have to follow the art and the best the best arbiter is what happens to your patients you give your patient a treatment and you see what the response is. And of course, the, the first basic principle is first do no harm. So all, all the components of our Math Plus protocol were exceedingly safe, exceedingly safe. So it wasn't as if we were experimenting with um, dangerous uh, therapies that had not been used you know, previously. These were all well-validated, um, FDA-approved drugs that had a very long safety record so that, you know, there was, the, what's the downside? You know, if you have a therapy which can potentially save a patient's life, even though it's not proven by a randomized controlled trial, that's exceedingly safe, cheap, and effective, there's clearly no downside. So why would you not, why would you not institute such a therapy? I almost look at what you've done in those 
in these two aspects of your career as more artistry than science because it's the innovation side. And, and as a result of that innovation, what you've done is you've elevated medicine. And that's something that is so desperately needed today is innovation to elevate for the purpose really of empowering patient healing. And that's what you've done over these two episodes. Yeah, so I think it's innovation and it's art applied to science because the two are intrinsically linked together because otherwise you would just randomly apply therapies that have no scientific basis. So it's, a, it's about thinking, <laughs> you know, it's about contemplating, it's about thinking about the disease process. It's the, the, the whole uh, critical thinking idea of, wow, what's going on? What can we do? Having a discussion with colleagues, which is really so important because you, you don't want to be out, uh, you know, on a limb on your own. So, you know, speaking with similar minded colleagues who see, the, see similar patients provides important validation for, for um, this approach. And so, you know, open dialogue is so important. So you're all sitting there or you're having, you weren't sitting there in purpose, but in, in, in position together in the same room, but you started having these dialogues about these therapies. But some point there had to reach a point where you were saying, hey, we need to do something more because you originally took the idea of this treatment protocol and then took it to, uh, let's form an organization. So how did that process yeah. happen? So initially the, the protocol was on the medical school website. And at that time I was considered somewhat of a hero and the medical school was very supportive. But with time, as it became clear that I was following a narrative which went against the standard of care and the, um, the narrative that was being pushed by the NIH and the CDC, the medical school became less and less um, supportive of me. And so really the writing was on the wall. So that's when we decided, you know what, we, we have to go out on our own. We need to form a, um, a group. So we had formed the group and it was really Pierre's idea about forming a, a non-for-profit organization. At first, I, I, I was a little bit skeptic because I thought, why? You know, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't understand what we were getting into. And so it was, it was a really good idea because I think that helped us launch the FLCCC. So it really became, came out of necessity that we were getting a lot of pushback from the medical school as well as from other sources because we simply weren't following what the NIH and CDC and WHO were, were, were suggesting. And so we had to go on our own. And so that, that's really how the FLCCC came into being. And, you know, fortunately we, we had some very good donors who helped us, you know, get the uh, organization off the, off the ground. So, so in the beginning, the FLCCC was designed to really be a place for the idea of following the data, innovating to develop new treatment strategies for this new pandemic that really was getting no direction about what to do. Instead of, in, in, instead they were being told to just wait on 
the injection that's coming. What y'all did is you said, no, we're going to do something now because we're losing lives. And so you actually focused not just in a nonprofit, but you did that for action, for purposes of action to the general public. Well, we had a, a medical and a moral and ethical obligation because patients were dying. We knew there were treatments out there that could save lives. So we had to do what, what we had to do. It was our moral and ethical obligation. So, you know, it started off as a protocol for the hospitalized patient, but, you know, it became very evident very quickly that the way to get out of this pandemic was early treatment. Early treatment was and is and will always be yeah. the, the way to get out of any disease. I mean, it's just common sense. We saw that with sepsis, early treatment. Uh, you know, this is, this, is not, this is not rocket science. This is just basic common sense. And right. so why the NIH, I mean, it's truly astonishing that they got away with it. The NIH publicly said, there's no treatment. You stay at home. When you go blue and you can't breathe, you go to hospital. Can you imagine something so outrageous? And so again, we thought this is just inhuman, it's immoral, it's evil, it's destructive, it's killing people. So we decided to come up with an early treatment protocol, which was based on the best available science we had then, uh, which is basically what we've done from the beginning. And so I think, you know, we, we, people can say we were lucky. It, it wasn't luck. It was understanding the science, understanding the disease. And we came up with a early treatment protocol, which I think to this day stands, you know, on its own as a valid intervention. And there's no question in my mind, no question that if this had been applied more widely across the world, we wouldn't have been it wouldn't be in the position that we are now. And there are studies from, from countries like in India and Argentina uh, and Peru where they widely used, and Mexico, widely used early intervention strategies and it completely wiped out the disease. So we know it works. There's overwhelming evidence that it works. You know, so we had data, in vitro data, we had experimental data, we had clinical data, and we had epidemiological data. So this, this was not just much like the math protocol. It, it wasn't just, you know, invented out of nowhere. This was based on good science. And so we still believe uh, that the tr management of COVID is best managed by early treatment. And I think it applied with the early ancestral strain, with the Delta variant, mm -hmm. with the Gamma variant, mm -hmm. and now with Omicron, is that, well, you know, obviously the virus has mutated, um, and we can talk about why it's mutated, um, but obviously it's mutated now, it's highly infectious, less toxic, but still, you want to treat yourself early, and so the same treatment principles Fine. apply. I mean, any disease, it doesn't matter what the disease is, if you're having a heart attack, we know you want to be treated early. If you're having a stroke, time is of the essence. Why would you wait? Why in heaven's name would you wait? And the same applies to COVID. If you have COVID, you want to be treated early. 
and we know the success is in early treatment. So beyond just the formation of a nonprofit and then the formation of an actual organization with a name, it became a movement and it still is a movement that's really just pivoting, but it's one that's a movement driven by the general public, driven by doctors that are just relying on the data. That, that's what's amazing to me is your repetitive ability to have a solid foundation of data and then clinically apply that to innovate. You know, you said it, it was, it's not just luck. There's a famous quote that says, you know, the um, fortune smiles on the prepared. Well, you were prepared because of your critical analysis of the data, as was this group. And fortune smiled on you, not from a necessarily a financial perspective, but from an, a perspective of raising awareness and supporting a movement and a pivot in medicine. Yeah. So it's really important to emphasize that we had no conflict of interest. We're not selling anything. We, right. we don't have any drugs. We don't have any product we're selling. So we, we have no conflict of interest. And I think that's really so important because when you have a conflict of interest, you're conflicted. Whereas we, we could be honest and open and do what we thought was the right thing. And I think that's been our guiding principle. You know, we're not influenced by any commercial product or commercial entity. You know, we do what, what is the correct thing scientifically. Fortunately, we have followers who, you know, value our, 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 our approach mm -hmm. and do provide financial support to keep us doing what we're doing. And for that, we're really grateful. But you know, it, we don't have corporate sponsors. We, we've been very careful in avoiding conflicts of interest because then that biases one's um, outlook and perceptions. And if you want to find out <clears throat> more about the FLCCC, definitely go over to their website, flccc.net or flccc.com and you'll find everything that you can you know, want to know about the organization, uh, the members involved, uh, the founding members, because you were, you were one of the founding members, correct? Yes, so I kind of started it because you know, I put the first protocol together mm -hmm. and then I contacted a, a bunch of my colleagues and so you know, we, we kind of found it together. Yeah. You know, so Pierre, paid, Pierre Corey played an important role in the beginning in helping us, you know, launch it as an organization. But, you know, so Pierre and I really were the, were the co-founders. Right. Um, but the others played an important role. But then, especially you and Pierre, your job seemed to change. You all of a sudden were going around to speak to politicians, to speak to government bodies. So it became a move from clinical to one of really pushing the needle in policy, right? Yeah, well, we, you know, we knew, we knew, you know, we knew what the direction, the correct direction was. And we could see the country going, or not just the country, the world going in the wrong direction. Yeah. So we thought we had an obligation. Um, fortunately, there were, were some open-minded politicians who did embrace what we were doing. And so, you know, I think Pierre, did um, you know he did Senate testimony first on corticosteroids? You know when it was considered um, 
you know, heresy to use corticosteroids, and then on ivermectin. So I think those two Senate testimonies, you know, uh, were really powerful in in drawing people's awareness t- to this issue. And then subsequently, you know, um, there have been a number of initiatives in different states, uh, which we've been closely, you know, involved with. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, in um, New Hampshire, I testified in the legislature in New, New, New Hampshire, which was, you know, initially very, uh, very pro the narrative. But what was interesting in New Hampshire is we actually, I was surprised that the legislators were actually open to having a dialogue. Can you believe that? So it, it, was, it was a two-way dialogue. We had a conversation. They asked me questions. I answered. We, we engaged in a dialogue. And really it was through that dialogue that we were able to make some substantial legislative changes in, um, in New Hampshire. And so because of that, you know, ivermectin is now permissible to be prescribed. And, um, you know, the, 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 the ability of doctors to be doctors w- without any interference, you know, be, became part of the legislature. So and you're, then, you're almost having more scientific discourse with legislators than you were with the medical community at large. Oh, yes. You know, most definitely. And then probably one of our biggest successes was the state of Tennessee. And again, you know, we engaged in discussion with the legislators in, in Tennessee. They were open to discussion. We had testimony. And believe it or not, ivermectin, if I can mention the word, yep. maybe I should just say the I word, um, <laughs> is available over the counter, over the counter. While in some states it's banned, it's considered a toxic horse deworming medicine, you know, only fit for horses. In the state of Tennessee, human beings can get it over the counter for the treatment of COVID. So it, it, is, a, it is a country of many different countries. And so we did have success in, in, in Tennessee. And then we had some similar success recently in the state of Ohio. Um, so, you know, it seems like many of the legislators are, are more open to having a dialogue than, um, than our healthcare agencies or many physicians. Well, first of all, I got to say this, uh, go Rocky Top. So um, that's where I went to residency was uh, University of Tennessee. And uh, my youngest daughter is looking to go there. And so we're Tennessee football volunteer fans. So if you're not, I apologize. So, uh, but um, we could, we could uh, sing a rendition of Rocky Top, but I think we want people to listen. Uh, it's interesting that, you know, you had more innovation with people that reported to the general public. You had more advancement with politicians because they reported to the people. What does that say about medicine? What it makes me think is that medicine doesn't feel it reports, healthcare doesn't report to the people anymore because there was more advancement when you engaged the politicians who engaged with the people. But it seemed to be just the opposite. And so my conclusion is healthcare thinks they do not report to the people. Yeah. Unfortunately, the, 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 the tragedy in this country and across the world is that the healthcare agencies whose job should be to promote the healthcare of the public, that's what they are, public health agencies, 
Omeo, Omo, seem to be more responsible to the pharmaceutical companies that control them and who they are so-called regulating than they are to the general public and in promoting healthcare measures, which is a tragedy. So, um, you know, we've had to work through legislators because that's one of the few avenues that have been open to us. But it's a tragedy, you know, we contacted the CDC, the FDA, the NIH, and it was just complete silence. They were absolutely not interested in what we had to say. Although we did, I must say, we did have, we managed to have a, um, a conference with the NIH early in 21 with regards to ivermectin, which at that time they completely... Um, recommended against. We, prevented, we presented data which was overwhelmingly in favor of the use of ivermectin and we presented this to them and so sheepishly they changed their, their recommendation from against to neither for nor against which was, means that they just didn't want to publicly admit there was data. Uh, so that was in I think January of 21. Subsequently for reasons that remain unclear, they've gone, they've reversed that recommendation. And I, I think uh, <clears throat> Dr. Pierre Corey published a book recently on that as well. So obviously that was instrumental. You know, what's interesting is they talked about, um, you know, ivermectin being a horse dewormer, but it's an FDA approved drug and has been. Yeah, so ivermectin actually is a truly remarkable drug and what people don't recognize is after penicillin, it's probably had a greater impact on the health and well-being of humanity than any other drug. You know, over two billion doses have been prescribed to human beings, human beings, not wow. horses in Africa. And it's completely changed the landscape of two very important parasitic diseases, which was decimating most of Africa, mm -hmm. you know, this is filariasis and lower, lower, um, and onchocerca. I mean, the, the, these are parasitic diseases which had profound, Im profound impact in Africa and were turned around with the use of, um, of ivermectin, if I can mention the word. And in fact, Merck, who was a co-inventor, you know, they had a humanitarian program and provided the ivermectin really free of charge. But when it came to COVID, suddenly ivermectin became a dangerous medication which was not fit for human use. So they, you know, it's been used in millions of patients across the globe and has, you know, changed the face of many people's lives. Uh, it's exceedingly safe. Yeah. It has a safety profile which exceeds that of Tylenol exceeds that of Tylenol. Oh, we can talk about Tylenol, because Tylenol has been shown to negatively impact um, immune checkpoint inhibitors. So Tylenol is immunosuppressive. A lot of people don't, we can go down the rabbit hole on that later, but um, you know, Tylenol, which is sold over the counter, and yet nobody could access ivermectin. Like you said, I've, I've used ivermectin as a repurposed medication, so that's coming soon um, for a long time. But I've never seen an adverse event associated with it 
in, in our patients, and these patients tend to be very, very sick. So here, you have Tylenol over the counter, yet ivermectin, the horse dewormer, FDA-approved drug though it is, you couldn't find it anywhere. Yeah, yeah. it's the absurdity of what when politics intercedes in medicine. So I think the bottom line is, you know, we have medicine should be independent of political, economic, and financial influences. And, you know, we should be driven what's correct for the patient. And obviously safety is important. Oh, yeah. And as you said, I mean, Tylenol is, is an exceedingly toxic drug, which you can get over the counter. Yeah. Yet, except for this, the wonderful state of Tennessee, um, <laughs> most states, ivermectin is banned, which makes absolutely no sense. I have a good friend that's a compounding pharmacist, say Joe. So, um, and he, I remember he texted me. He said, I, you can get ivermectin now. So I said, what do you mean? He said, it's over the counter. So um, <clears throat> you have to give accolades where accolades do. The work that y'all did, but the fact that there were legislatures that heard this and actually looked to protect the people that they served. And I just thought that that's what physicians were. Yeah. But I think it's changed. But, but you know, when we look at these two points, because really people might look at them differently, but I think it's, it's, it's an interconnect that really is pushing towards the future. FLCCC, COVID, ivermectin, COVID, they come together. But now I think what we're seeing is both of these point towards the future that possibly is cancer. And, and that's one of the things I talked about. And so I think it's a good pivot point because there's a great quote from George Orwell in 1984 that says, the party told you to reject the evidence of your eyes and ears, and it was their final most essential command. And so basically, when you look at cancer, we're going to make a pivot here on FLCCC and ivermectin, because I think it's a good pivot point to cancer. What we're being told is that, well, we were told that, you know, this virus cannot be treated with ivermectin. We now know that's not true. When you look at what is defined as a cancer-causing virus, this virus checks every box. But we also are beginning to understand a lot of the, the pathways and the mechanisms by which it aggravates cancer. So it's really interesting that these two points come together and I think really what we're going to look back on, uh, Paul, is that 2019 is going to be a delineation of time. So we have AD and BC as it relates to time, but I think what we're going to have now is pre-COVID and post-COVID as it relates to cancer. So this is going to carry us towards the, the new book that you have coming, which we'll record in the, the third segment. But what's your thoughts on that? in terms of the interconnect of these two together, because ivermectin is a repurposed medication for cancer, but how what we're looking at is turbo cancer or the next pandemic that is cancer. Yeah, so I think your analogy of BC and AC is absolutely correct because it's going to be pre-COVID and post-COVID right. for many aspects, you know, but particularly for cancer. Uh, I think it's going to be really an important milestone because although the powers that be want to deny the existence of turbo cancers and the association between 
SARS-CoV-2, as well as the vaccine and cancers, the reality is speaking with people on the ground and they have no reason to manufacture this data is they're seeing cancers in younger people. They're seeing patients who were in remission who are now in relapse. They're seeing cancers that are out of control and highly aggressive. And if you just look at the Department of Defense data, the, the incidence of cancer has doubled, well, I shouldn't say doubled, it's gone up over 200-fold, 200%. So there's overwhelming data oh, yeah. that we, we have a, a problem. The, 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 the bigger problem is what is the time frame? Because if you look at long COVID or vaccine injured, it, it happens within a reasonable time frame. You know, most patients with long COVID are symptomatic for six to eight months and then get better. In terms of the vaccine injured, most of the injuries occur within a month. The problem is with the cancers, we do not know what the time frame is. And so the scary thing is that we're vaccinating children with this experimental genetic therapy, which we know causes cancer, but we don't know what the time frame is. So we are likely, and who knows, you know, going to be facing a new pandemic, a pandemic of malignancies and cancers. You know, we were talking about this yesterday that I was reading an article looking at pregnant mothers and stress and how that changed genetic expression of their children. That when they were in utero, so when they were pregnant, these developing children were their expression of genetics were changed because of the stress their, their mother underwent. And so they had a, they had a phrase that they just kind of, I read over and it was called fetal reprogramming. So I was just reading along as it was talking about epigenetic and transgenerational inheritance. And it mentioned fetal reprogramming. And I immediately stopped in my tracks and went back to that because you mentioned the vaccination injection in children, but it's also been advocated in pregnancy and so there and so if you then start to look you see that others are talking about fetal reprogramming so i think even the potential impact was even pre you know pediatrics it was in obstetrics where they were actually changing the genetic expression of these children yet unborn before they even reach those chances for a booster so in a way, these vaccines or GMOs, they cause genetically modified organisms. And um, it's, the, it's a very scary concept. And you're right. I think the safety in pregnancy was never determined. Oh. It was never tested in pregnancy. Weren't they, you, weren't they excluded, pregnant mothers? Oh, yes, they were, because almost all FDA studies on new drugs and new interventions exclude pregnant woman just because the risks are so high. So in the studies, women were by design excluded, yet now the FDA and the CDC and the WHO are recommending vaccination in women. And we know that the, if you just look at the data, that the risk of women spontaneously aborting is about 80% if they get vaccinated in the first trimester, which is a more efficient abort-efficient than actually the use of a abortion medication. So um, it's wow. very scary data. And then of course, there's the, the question of genetic and epigenetic changes that um, these are genetically modified children. 
So who knows? Wow. And, and I mean, <clears throat> I don't think, it's like it's some bad Star Trek movie. I mean, my dad was a Star Trek fan when I was growing up, and I can remember watching some of those, those shows, um, you know, some of the originals, and it was great, and it was, you know, it was fantasy. But we're we're living fantasy. Yeah. So I have to hit my head on the head, my hand on the, my head, hand on head on the head, head on the head, because it just seems so unrealistic and unreal that what are we going through? This can't be real. This must be a dream, because it just doesn't bear any sense to reality. Um, you're right. It just is a. It's a bad it, Hollywood script, is what it is. It's a bad. It's a whoever wrote the script. You know, this this is a horror movie, and it, it's it's a really scary. And the problem with this movie is we're not sure of the ending. Oh, and it's 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 like we're we're thinking on the same mindset because you know, what we're doing here is we're making this pivot to to cancer because I think that's one of the next huge impacts that that you and the FLCCC can have, and of course the the book does. There was an article from uh, 2023 published in JAMA. Um, patterns in cancer in incidents among people younger than 50 years in the U.S. This is pre-COVID now, 2010 to 2019. Here's a quote. Recent data suggest a marked increase in the incidence of cancer of various organs among patients younger than 50, collectively known as early onset cancer. That's pre-COVID. Yeah. That's pre-COVID. Then we fast track to, or we back up a little bit, to actually a 2019 article in The Lancet, which is a prospective urban rural epidemiology study, where they were looking at cancer in high-income, middle-income, and low-income countries. And they found that in high-income countries, cancer was the number one cause of mortality in adults by a rate of two and a half to one compared to cardiovascular disease. And in fact, one of, the, uh, one of the authors there, one of the lead authors from Stanford said that we are now seeing a new epide epidemiologic transition from heart disease to cancer as the leading cause of death, which is occurring first in high-income countries. So all of that was pre-2019. So yeah. now what we have is basically an open-ended observational study long-term of the impact of what happened during the pandemic. We have no idea where this is going, but I think we do because we're seeing this, like you said, on the ground with doctors, with patients. I can't tell you, Paul, I have seen in the last seven months, eight months, three patients with co-primaries, co breast and pancreatic cancer, breast cancer in men, it's supposed to be exceedingly rare. And the, the clinic where our medical director, Brio Medical, it's, it's small. We see about 25 to 30 patients. I have seen four male breast cancers since I've been in Arizona. We are seeing bizarre, bizarre things. And to see what you see in patients that have achieved remission or cancers regressing, and they're getting, uh, you know, they're getting good results from treatment, so they're, they're getting responses, and then they either get an infection or they get an injection. And I've never seen this before. It goes completely sideways and doesn't respond. So are you, as you discuss with other colleagues as you did to form the FLCCC, are you seeing and hearing other stories like this? 
Absolutely. I think that the general consensus, you know, particularly speaking to pathologists, because pathologists always know the truth. It may be after the fact, but they know the truth. Right. And so pathologists are seeing a massive upswing in, in cancers, particularly in younger patients yeah. and highly malignant tumors. So this is, a, this is a reality. Unfortunately, it's being ignored by the medical establishment and obviously it's not going to be published in the medical journals. No. But this is the, the new reality. And, you know, time will tell because I think this is uh, really scary. Um, so when we look at the, you know, of course, it's, it's a little bit of a, a hyperbolic statement, but I think it's one that correctly describes what we're just discussing here, which is, you know, Turbo cancer, it's, it's basically cancer on steroids. It's cancer that's different. Cancer pre-COVID and cancer post-COVID are two different things. Now, turbo just being a, an adjective, just a, you know, it's going back to the, the word turbine in the 1900s. It's just using something to describe it. But yet, if we try to describe it, turbo cancer, you know, that, that word is, that, that automatically results in your censorship but you're just describing it. So I found it really interesting that if you say turbo cancer, that's not accepted. But if you talk about turbocharging with chemotherapy, oh, that's accepted. If you say turbocharging the T cell to fight cancer, that's okay. If you say it's a race to supercharge cancer fighting T cells, all of that's okay. So you can use turbo as an adjective to describe something, but it just depends on who you attach that to. Is it conventional or is it, you know, deemed outside of that conventional box? So it's okay to use it here, but not there. And it's just simply people describing what they're seeing, what they're experiencing. So we're saying we, we are seeing cancer change, whether it's called turbocharging or what, we see it not the same. Yep. Uh, and unfortunately, the future is, you know, unclear. Yeah, it's unclear. But I think we're beginning to see the evidence here. And it's one of the things that I encourage people, go to the flccc.com.net website because you can actually access, purchase the lectures. And one of the things that I did was kind of, I laid out what I called a metastatic map. Say we we will never see the evidence clearly laid out. Aha, mea culpa, our bag. We made a mistake. But what we can do is connect the dots of the data and see what the data shows. And so one of the things that I did there was I, I looked at the, you know, those at risk, which is obese, cardiovascular disease, those with comorbidities, the toxins, the spike proteins, whether injection or infection, because everybody focuses on the injection, and rightly so, but this applies to infection as well. And then couple that through how cancer upregulates receptors, the toll-like 4 receptors, and that spike protein with the lipopolysaccharide, which is, you know, systemic inflammation coming or being along with obesity, all of this is driving this process, talking about the hypercoagulation, increasing platelet activity, platelet ag aggregation. So that in turn was then, if you're, if you're driving the systemic inflammation, if you're driving this platelet hyperactivation, if you're driving this release of circulating tumor cells, now all of a sudden you got cancer growing, 
systemic inflammation, you have circulating tumor cells, you have platelets, and the literature describes a cancer cell platelet aggregate with inflammation, and then endothelial damage, that's a setup for metastasis. So it's now, does, is there a study that shows, yes, this happens, this happens, this happens, this happens, this happens. We were wrong. But what we can do and what you've done over your career is say, well, here's the data. Now I need to innovate this to help patients. And I think the same thing applies here that just simply connecting the dots and applying that, we don't know exactly where we're going, but I think we have a pretty good idea of where we're going. And I think we're just starting to see the early phases of that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I want to thank Dr. Paul Merrick for joining us in this second segment as we focused on the FLCCC's work and its origin and birth and its work through the pandemic and where it's going in the future. To learn more, check out the first podcast where we talked about vitamin C, sepsis, COVID-19, and cancer. So check that out there. Find a link here attached. Also, Go to the flccc.net website. There you'll find everything related to this fabulous organization. I encourage you to also sign up for this podcast so that you'll receive updates and notifications as we drop a new podcast. Check out my personal brand website, drgoodyear.com. And of course, find us on Instagram, dr.goodyear, or look for me anywhere on social media you find. And then for those that have cancer or want to learn more information, go to brio-medical.com. That's where you find where I'm medical director, where we're bringing these innovation integrative oncology therapies, including repurposed medications that Dr. Paul Merrick's gonna talk so much about in his new book, there at Brio Medical. Dr. Good, you're signing out. We will talk to you soon in that third segment. Look for it coming right now. For more information, just like what we discussed today, I encourage you to follow us on YouTube as well as all of your favorite audio streaming platforms. And in there, we'll talk about all things related to healing, wellness, cancer, and much, much beyond because it doesn't just apply to cancer. Our goal here is to turn to healing, restore health, and promote your wellness. Whether that greatest obstacle to wellness being cancer or any other named disease, our goal is your wellness. I'm Dr. Nathan Goodyear, and enjoy our future podcast at Practicing with Dr. Goodyear.